The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gillen. Hey everyone, welcome to our program, Afternoons with Mike. Heard daily at this time across the Shepherd Radio Network. And you say, hmm, if you're listening for the first time, where's that? It's in Orlando, in Ocala, the Villages, also up in Gainesville. And uh, we are so excited to be with you wherever you are here in Central or North Central Florida. I have with me in the studio today, coming to you from Studio A this time, Curtis Partridge. Curtis owns the Lotus Management Services. It's an IT company, but believe me, there's a lot more than just uh, a digital ones and zeros when it comes to this man. He is a very interesting person, a bit of an entrepreneur, and uh, we're excited to have Curtis Partridge with us today. Welcome to my program, Curtis. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you. Well, this is really great. Now, I I know that you've uh, been around. You've been in different parts of the country, so to speak. Mm -hmm. How long have you been in this area? So in Central Florida, I moved here in 1990. Ended up, my uh, parents moved here my senior year of high school. Uh, My parents came here to further their missionary career with new what then was new tribes mission oh yeah in man. sanford they uh, which is now ethnos 360 but um i ended up my here my senior year and said i think i like florida this is where i'm i'm not going back to pennsylvania <laughs> where i where i was born and raised until i was about 12 now what part of pennsylvania was that north of pittsburgh so near Con- indiana no well so no even farther north than that it's commonly referred to as pennsylvania Pennsylvania, very and, rural part of uh, Western Pennsylvania. Okay, Amish land. A lot all? of Amish. Yeah, lots right. of Amish. Yes. Okay, I've been up in that area and it's gorgeous. Oh, it is beautiful, beautiful. place. So it's always been my dream to have a second home there. I, I the winters are crazy, but yeah, the summers are just even the smell of summer. Western oh, Pennsylvania is beautiful. It's beautiful. I I love it. I have to say. Yeah. But you're right. I've flown in there in the winter time before. Oh, it's bitter. Not a nice experience. No, no, no. It's yeah. it's, it's it's a rough. It's a, you're very hardy if you live in it. And I still have some family that live in that area. And you know, we would fly from Orlando and land in Pittsburgh. Yes. And then we would take a little what I we called puddle jumpers. I mean, it was the oh yeah. Uh, it was like a uh, Winnebago with wings. Yes. That's what it looked like, honest to goodness. I thought, where did they find this airplane? And the first time I went up in one of those, it was cold and drafty in that plane. Yeah. I don't think the heater was on. It was just quite the experience to fly on into uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, my dad, was. so we lived outside of Franklin. And so dad, same thing, when he would fly somewhere for business, he started on the little puddle jumper and uh, went down to Pittsburgh. And yeah, that, that I never experienced it, but I heard it was an adventure. Yeah. So, you know, funny thing about that. I rented a car one time on that trip and I was heading up, I believe toward Indiana, Pennsylvania. And um, Mm -hmm. I had a rental car and I turned the radio on and it was on that trip. The first time I ever heard Rush Limbaugh, (laughs) I picked him up because he was on a station up there in that area. Yep. First time I ever heard him. And shortly after that, I mean, he just completely mushroomed and sure. he was on everywhere and any town could get him then. But that was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it's, like I say, it's a lovely area. And, and I know that some industries come back to it, but boy, it's been an area that's always struggled. Well, yeah. you know, Pennsylvania, it's kind of fallen into some, uh, maybe some bad repute in the last couple of years because of all the political stuff that's going on. Not as friendly, uh, let's say, confines to conservatism conservatism as it used to be. Well, it depends. it's kind of like Florida. Once you get out of the cities, it's pretty conservative. I guess that's right. You know, because, but all what gets all the attention would be Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and yes. all of that. Yep. 
Yeah, Absolutely. but I, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say it the way I did. You're exactly right. It's just that reputation that Pennsylvania gets because of the big elections and all of the stuff that goes on with them. Yeah, yeah. The problems yeah. are in Allegheny County, around Pittsburgh, and then over in Philly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. It's a beautiful area. Oh yeah, I, I just love it. But you landed here now. Let Let's go for a moment to what you were talking about. Your parents. That's got to be exciting to have had. Yeah, you know, we I've talked to a lot of PKs, not as many MKs, mm-hmm. missionary kids, but just like a PK who often has traveled around to different parts of the country, different churches, different backgrounds. Uh, you came from a, a really uh, diverse background of uh, having your parents be missionaries with new tribes. Tell us about that. So my dad was a corporate guy, worked in the oil industry, Quaker State Oil. And I was about 12 years old. We went to a missionary conference at our church. We had a week-long missionary conference. My parents got saved when I was probably about third grade or so. And so, you know, they, they you know, and in the 80s, there was kind of that rapid, there was a bit of a revival mm-hmm. you know, going on. And uh, they kind of got swept up in that, ultimately became missionaries when I was 12 or 13 years old. And we went off to Bible school. So they were actually moving into ministry. A lot of people I've heard will do this after having a career set, after working for years, even having a family, you were 12 and they launch into something that's like a 180 from what they've done before. Oh yeah. I I lived on a wide open farm in the country of Western Pennsylvania. And next thing I know, I'm in an apartment building in Michigan Wow. while, while they went to two years of Bible school. But I will say in hindsight, and even at the time, I, I thought it was quite an adventure. I, I didn't dislike it, mm-hmm. but I'm sure I grumbled. I was a teenage kid, but that's what we did, you know, but it's, uh, <laughs> that's what teenage kids do, right? I would have grumbled, you know, like the old saying, I'd complain if I was hung with a new rope. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, kids complain no matter what, but I ended up, um, it was quite an adventure and PK kids are different from MKs or, you know, preacher's kids are different from missionaries' kids. Missionary kids learn to make fast friends because missionaries are on the move all the time. They only spend a certain number of years in the field, and they have to come home for a year for furlough and to renew, raising funds to go out for the next four years. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even when they're home on furlough, they're traveling. So I, yeah, it's not like it's a year vacation or whatever. Oh, no, they're yeah. on the road. Yeah. And they're making presentations and they're going to, to... Raising support. Right. And so I, you learn to make fast friends. They were here and then they're gone. We didn't have social media to keep up. You may exchange a letter or two and then they just kind of, you know, you, you have a new yeah. set of friends. Pen pals. Pen pals. That's yeah. right. That's what we used to call it, but yeah. not anymore. No, no. Social <laughs> world, media changed all that. But. Yeah, it certainly did. Now, where were some of the spots that you did go in missions work? Um, so we were primarily stateside. Uh, my parents did training in Kentucky and in Michigan. We did do one stint in Senegal, West Africa. Uh, that was in uh, building a school in Fonda, Senegal. School no longer there. there. Uh, we were only there for a summer. It was it was a summer trip. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents wanted to get us exposed to it. They wanted to be exposed to that because I think ultimately they knew they probably would end up in the technology because my father worked in technology. So he ended up working at the headquarters in Sanford, working in their, uh, what they call microcomputer department. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what brought you to central Florida. Ultimately, that's mm-hmm. how I ended up here. And, yeah. um, and he ultimately, uh, he was with the mission for a number of years, retired a few years ago. And, um, yeah. And then, and I've, I originally went into radio, stayed there for a few years, did engineering and radio, got out of radio. And when you say engineering first class ticket, never got my first class okay, because it wasn't required by the early oh, 90s. That's right. Yeah. I had to get my third class to even just to be on the air oh, yeah. back in the yeah. day. And a lot of what you had to learn to get a third class ticket was also what you had to know with a first, you know, so there, it was a tough test back in the day. I had a, uh, what they called the radio telephone permit, mm-hmm. which was at the very tail end. I think I got it probably 89, 90. Mm. And, uh, so yeah, the, the, the third class first, cl- all of that was gone by the yeah. time I got yeah, involved. They deregulated but, radio. Yeah. I got mine in 73. So it was, 
a trip to Chicago yep. on Dearborn Street, I believe it was, where the FCC office was, yep. and a very tough test. Yeah, I know a lot of Central Florida guys went to Tampa because mm-hmm. that was the, the place field here office. for the FCC, yeah. FCC district office, so or field office. But, um, yeah, I, I did some years in broadcasting, saw the industry changing. I really have a heart for small business. I, I don't know why that's where I always thrived. And so I saw the big corporations starting to form such as what ultimately became iHeart and mm-hmm. all those. And I said, yeah, that's probably not me. So moved, in, did a little st- stints in sales and eventually ended up in IT. So. Now, did you know uh, early on that you had this entrepreneurial spirit about you? Did you know that? Or did I, yeah, see I it? think so. Yeah, I've always been, I'm not, I'm not great at conforming. So, and entrepreneurs thrive when they don't conform because you have they to look find at a way around. Yeah, they look at something and say, "I can do that better." Okay, and so you're not conforming to you know what's going on. And I will say to backtrack, you know, in some aspects of my life, that's been made a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. Being a missionary kid who's a nonconformist is probably not the easiest path to take. Well, I can see it uh, producing in you a resilience, though, that yes. would really be helpful yes. because of the new environs that you're constantly being exposed to, uh, different areas, different cultures, Yes, uh, you know, and, and by cultures, when you move even in the United States, oh, yeah. oh there's a lot of different feels and mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff going yeah, for on. About a year, we lived in eastern Kentucky. Oh, and in the in the mountains, in now. the mountains, uh, yeah. outside of Hazard. So, oh wow. So yes, you can go in the U.S. I love that area. And yeah. yeah, it was it was as peculiar in Eastern Kentucky as I think it was in Senegal. In a lot of isn't ways. that something? Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. The culture, well, the the culture is unique even to the Western Kentucky, which is where I was from. I mm. I, I lived in Northern Indiana, but for a short while lived in Henderson, Kentucky, which is right across the river from my hometown of Evansville. And so living there, I mean, it's even the difference between my hometown Evansville and Henderson. When you drive seven miles over the Ohio River, you're in a different feel altogether. That's That's the part about America that I just love. You could drive, so we used to have to go shopping. You know, if we wanted to do some serious shopping. It was a Saturday trip to Lexington. Yeah. And you know, that's where the quote level landers lived. The level landers. <laughs> I've not heard that. That was that's a good. Eastern Kentucky phrase. Isn't yeah. that something? Yep. Boy, those mountains can be brutal. in a lot of them it's they're they're sharp peaks up in there. It, it's yeah. It's, you know, I, my, uh, our son and daughter-in-law lived in uh, Denver for a while. So we got to experience the Rockies. Oh, no, not quite like that. Yeah, but, but, but <laughs> that's it, big time. It, it's a unique <laughs> challenge because there's no flat land and in eastern Kentucky. So yeah. it's, you know, you, you, everything's built into a hill. I was uh, traveling from Moorhead State University, coming back toward Henderson one time, coming on one of those mountains, mm-hmm. and we were heading down. It was a rainy day, and I had a bunch of kids in the the van with me, and a car passed me going way, way, way too fast on the down slope of one of those mountains, yep. and we watched that car go into a hydroplane and was cutting donuts round and around and around, looping, 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 must have looped seven times before coming to stop right in the middle of the highway, aiming the opposite direction. <laughs> oh, it was a scary day, man. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it was a, uh, you know, we complain about the traffic here. Um, there, of course, they have a lot of natural issues, that, you know, landslides, whatever the case may be. Uh, and they get used to it, the folks that live there. But it was very dangerous driving. It was not, they don't have the guardrails. They don't have, right. yeah, it was, yeah. It was uh, unique in the, in, Driving in in that part of the country, that's where I learned to drive. Yeah. Was in Eastern Kentucky. A, a lot teenager. of limestone cliffs, and oh yeah, uh, had to be cut through to make the roads, and then that that produces all sorts of opportunities for rock falls. And oh yeah, all that. yes, yeah. yeah. But it's a gorgeous area too. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. that's that's it. Well, this is really super to get to talk with you. Your dad was in. Uh, you mentioned that he was in a technology. 
but uh, it's so interesting to see how you've got into this IT. So you had to be one of those that was riding the wave of the changes of the integrated chip and all of the technology. Were you building computers early on? So I I was. I got my first computer in second grade, seven years old. So that would have been, uh, what, 1980, I guess. Wow. Yeah. 1979, 1980. Um, So got my first computer. And was that a computer? No, it was a Magnavox. So it had no permanent storage. So I would sit down and write a program in assembly language, which was just brutal. No one writes in assembly language today. And then when when we were done, it was turned off and... The next time you wanted to run your program again, you had to retype it in. Yeah. So I would write them on paper and I had a notebook of programs and they were, they really didn't do much. It was just, you know, primarily show off to my friends, but that was what we went through. Ultimately ended up getting into building computers. I built uh, a number of computers for myself, for friends, things like, like old that. XTs and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah. 486s. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, did a lot of, the, actually kind of got away from computers a little bit in the early 90s because I got so focused on uh, broadcast electronics. But then, you know, they came into the field probably 93, 94, we started seeing computers pop up and automation. And so. I, yeah, I know there are a lot of people listening right now to us that are, are relating to their early experiences with this box. It costs so much. And I remember oh, the jokes. Yeah. yeah. The jokes that people would say like, oh man, this thing's got, it, it, it's it's a 250K hard drive. You'll never need more in, in no, no. storage than that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember know. having a 40 megabyte hard drive and thinking, I couldn't fill this in a lifetime. <laughs> in a lifetime, <laughs> right? And that's what happened back then. I started using them when uh, they, you know this was just before the DOS 6.0 breakthrough, and that was really a big breakthrough right there. DOS oh, yeah. 6.0 yes. made a language where it's basic and mm-hmm. and you could you could learn very easily. And I used to do Quicken on DOS 6.0. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I, I worked at companies that we used uh, Peachtree accounting software and and ERP management software ran on DOS. Isn't that something? The old green screens. What a long way away that is now. And <laughs> yeah. then they came up with Windows 3.1 and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And life changed forever. Yep. Yeah. Color displays and boy. What a big difference. Curtis, uh, you you get to employ all this. I mean, I can tell that for you, a lot of this is just now fun, but it's also business because that's what you do uh, with your business as well. It is. And, you know, we're into, I, I have to say the business has changed a lot in the past 10 years. 10 years ago, we were still doing a lot of innovation. People were excited about the new things coming out. Uh, now it's more about protecting what you have. The, the industry has matured to the point that, you know, most of the the issues that folks could find to bring uh, to make their life better through mm-hmm. software, it's been done. Mm-hmm. Businesses have reached, a, you know, we see it where they've reached the, the kind of the pinnacle of being able to squeeze more out of computers. Robotics would probably be the only place, and some artificial intelligence. Those would be the two areas we see progress. But the big thing we're seeing now is how to protect companies from being attacked. And and individuals as well. And individuals. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. because that's a big deal. You're right. I mean, there was a day that in the computer world, the day the moment you bought a computer off the shelf at Office Depot or or back then Best Buy or uh, Circuit City or wherever mm-hmm. you you know, the place that's now defunct, uh, wherever it was. Just about a week later, that computer was obsolete. I mean, that's yes. that, that's exactly what it felt like back in that day. Yep. They're, not, they're not becoming obsolete quite so quickly. As they did. As they did. We're up against a break. This is Afternoons with Mike, my guest, Curtis Partridge. We'll be back in a moment. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando, offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses were offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. 
For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. My guest in the studio today is Curtis Partridge from Lotus Management Services and uh, a missionary kid who traveled around. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious to find out in this segment a little bit about how you came to know the Lord. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to grow up in the activity of a home that is being led by either a pastor or a missionary, uh, maybe even a deacon who's heavily involved in the church. But at some point, that's got to translate into your life. It's got to become personal. personal. So tell us that story. So, and and I hear this a lot from other pastors, kids, our pastor was a pastor's kid or an evangelist's kid actually. And he came to Christ late in what would you consider late in life? He's probably at that point had heard the gospel message thousands of times. I was in the same boat. I had heard the gospel message thousands of times, really worried about my salvation. I used to, so my grandmother used to put us in the, this van to shuttle stuff to flea markets. No seats, no seat belts. Mm. <laughs> I used to think. And my, that was done all the time back then. Back then, that was yeah. normal in the 80s. Yeah. But I used to stop and think, man, if something happens, where am I going? Uh-huh. I, now, at that point, I had to have heard the gospel message many, 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 many times. And ultimately, one day I was just riding in uh, my parents' Tropic Traveler van. If anybody remembers those, tells you how old I I am. I do. I remember (laughs) them. I was riding in the the back seat, and it just hit me like a light bulb. This is it. I'm I'm way overcomplicating this. It's just simply believing in the gospel that Christ came to earth, died for our sins, rose again on the third day. There's nothing I can do to make this happen. It's all him. Mm-hmm. And I turned it over. I can't tell you exactly how old I was, even what road we were on, probably even what state we were in because we were traveling so much at that time. But I remember sitting in that right captain's chair of that van. That's beautiful. Going, that's it. That, yeah. that is it. And the thing that has amazed me about the gospel message, as humans, we try to complicate it so much. I, I, some years ago, I had an opportunity to disciple a gentleman at church. And the only reason he wanted me to disciple him was, ostensibly, was, a, you know, I just want to go through this learning material so I can disciple someone. They wanted you to go through it first with someone and then kind of use a multiplication effect. And he actually worked at our church. He was a paid employee at the church. And we got several chapters, several different visits into the material. And I realized he didn't fully grasp the gospel. And, and, and he was living where I was living for a number of years with that fear. Mm-hmm. Am I good enough? Am I going to get to heaven? What happens if grandma rolls this van? <laughs> um, and so I, I was surprised. You can't always assume that somebody fully understands. No matter the where gift. they are. They- Because he's being discipled. He's already in that process. He's given some sense of assent in his life to be opened up to that. But it still had not translated into trust and joy and faith and assurance. Yes. Yep. So it's, it's, you know, but that's my story. And and, and I dwelt in that, that uh, rough area, I would put it, that that kind Mm -hmm. of unknown for, you know, I'd heard the message, but the message hadn't gotten through yet. So now there had to be, since you were like an early radio lover and worked in radio, ultimately became involved in it as we're talking in a little bit later. Uh, what, what are your early remembrances about Christian music? Um, so we had a, we had a Christian music station that was in Western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a big station out of Pittsburgh, but they were mainly spoken word. And as a kid, I had zero interest in that. But, but I did get involved in enjoying some of the uh, early Christian music. Amy Grant, I saw Amy Grant in concert. I think when I was probably eleven, mm. ten or eleven years old, we went away for a weekend um, music festival, which still goes on. It will. Oh, I'll remember creation. Yes, creation. Oh, oh my I went goodness, to creation yes. yeah. at 10 or 11 years old and saw Amy Grant. Oh, yeah. Won an opportunity to go backstage and just, you know, hi, Amy, you know, that kind of, yeah. you know, I think I had 0.3 seconds to stand in front of her. 
But that had a huge impact. I was really, I really loved Christian music. Got into gospel music in my later teens. Um, the, you know, that's because that's when C.C. Winans was mm-hmm. coming along and, and, and some of the, uh, Kirk Franklin, who were early, you know, now Amazing. they're considered mainstream Christian yeah. artists, but they were really got their start in gospel. Yeah. So. That's it. Well, that's really interesting. Did you ever happen to see Glad up there at Creation? Glad. That was a kind of a group of uh, guys, one of which is a good friend of mine, Bob Coughlin, hmm. who is... Uh, I've heard that name before. Yeah, he's uh, he wrote the book Worship Matters and uh, a great worship leader and singer, but a great musician. Went uh, went to uh, Penn, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he graduated from Pennsylvania and uh, my goodness, he's powerful as a musician, but their group glad uh, toured those festivals. And so, you know, and when, when, when you're a kid like that, I think, cause you know, obviously I still loved secular music, the eighties. I still think is the greatest time mm. in music. But I think whenever you're a teenager, I think you think that was the greatest yeah. time in music, but uh, you know, we really were attracted to some of those new young and I'm sure they were, of course it may have even been before they were touring in the eighties. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, that one doesn't come to mind, but you know, there were a lot of artists that were coming you know, Michael W. Smith, obviously, and Amy Grant and, yeah. um, you know, and then Petra and some of those bands. So mm-hmm. yeah, too much fun, man. Yep. Yeah. I can get lost and I can get on a massive rabbit trail when it starts talking about <laughs> all this stuff. We followed creation up in, uh, where my neck of the woods in Indiana and we followed it. Also, back in that same time period, there was a, a great move going on in Central Florida as well with the Jesus festivals that were taking place mm-hmm. down here in the 70s. And so I had interest in both of these big conferences. Uh, I had Alex Clattenberg on my program who had gone up, I believe, to creation. And uh, was he was a main factor in bringing those kind of festivals down to Orlando. And uh, boy... That it had a big influence around the country, and that revival that was going on, it was indeed a revival of the seventies, oh, uh, going through, oh, yeah. and the, on into the eighties. Yes, yeah, as I, kids were coming to know the Lord. Yep, yeah. there was that. There was they still did tent revivals mm-hmm. in the eighties. I I remember those. So I've been to a couple of those, and those were interesting to say the least. Well, well without a doubt, <laughs> and I think you'd be very interested with a guest that will be coming in. In a week or two, Caleb Wampler, who is still, he's a raging evangelist and does big meetings overseas that are tens of thousands of people come to these things. I mean, it's just, so it's still going on, not so much in the United States as what it did back in the tent revivals. I'm trying to remember his name. I want to say Bigelow, Bigelow, but he's leading a church in Europe. And he comes here to the U.S. And when he does, uh, Kate, I think he's here once a year or so, he has an open spot at our church. He's close with our pastor, mm-hmm. Pastor Rodney Gage. And so about once a year, maybe every other year, he he will teach and, and preach at our church and tell us what's going on in Europe. And you're correct. They're on fire over there. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. And it's sad in a real way the lack of faith and belief in America right now, when you can look at how even in countries where there's a lot of persecution yes. could cost you your life yep. to declare your faith in Jesus. Uh, yet this underground church, it's thriving, it's growing. People are walking a lot of these areas in Africa and other areas. People will walk all day long to yeah. be part of a church meeting. Yes. Yeah, and and uh, you, you, compare that to kind of our mindset in America. And it really is sad. So one of the things our company does is work with um, ministries that, um, you know, either we give away the service or it's, you know, pretty inexpensive. Um, And so one of them that we work with is a group that does discipleship in Africa and the stories from, from what those guys will do to go to a church service or go to a discipleship meeting. Yeah is amazing. Right. Now, again, sometimes it has to be under wraps early yeah. in the morning, ride their bike. And then another issue that we have such uh, a, a, an amount of gospel material, literature, printed Bibles, 
they often have only maybe one page torn out of a Bible. Yes. But they treasure the Word of God, and they treasure that one page. And they, they're constantly looking for more. And that's the part why I love uh, talking to missionaries and getting the feel. Because, you know, David Platt wrote a book called Radical. And in it, he talks about living in America, how we should be challenged to live as if we were on mission, as if we yeah. were in one of these countries. In other words, doing the very best that we can do, and it's impossible to do it completely but to have the mindset of a missionary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and wherever, yeah, that's the, the great commandment. Wherever you're at, you're supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be doing that, <laughs> but as we both know, that, uh, that that's not always the case. Right? And, and to kind of swing into back into technology a little bit, some of these groups are really laying the groundwork in Africa because, you know, you talk about they have limited resources. Well, the Internet's coming. Every time you see these rock, rockets going up from SpaceX, Every few weeks on our coast right here in central Florida, that's another batch of satellites to interconnect the Internet in places that they've never had the Internet. And they're anxious for it. They know it exists mm -hmm. and they know what's going to be possible. And so there are organizations already laying the groundwork in rural, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in equipping these folks that when the Internet arrives, how to equip, how to use that tool to spread the gospel. Now, you know, we haven't talked on this program a lot about Elon Musk, but there is something to be said mm -hmm. about what you just talked about that he's doing. I mean, he did this in Ukraine, uh, his technology link that he's made available to the people of Ukraine is really, it's mind boggling to me. It and I, I think most people in America aren't, aren't even aware of the level of access that this is giving to people who have never had it before. The other part of it, too, is I don't think that people are really wrapping their head around yet that Elon and his company, SpaceX or, or uh, Starlink, the, mm -hmm. that's just the uh, Internet company, is going to be a big section of the Internet. He will, in and of his, himself, his company, be the Internet. Because if you both are on his satellite service, you're not going to touch any other part of the Internet. He doesn't need the rest of the internet. Isn't that something? He'll just connect you from satellite to satellite. Yeah. And so Starlink was easy to set up for these people, and they, they got it, and they put it on, and voila, they're yeah. connected. They're up. Yeah. That is just amazing, man. So there's a whole lot about technology that all of us, I certainly have a lot yet to learn, and I know you swim in these waters every day. I do. I I you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're, we're really transitioning into, not everybody is, but there are a number of us who are transitioning into learning how to protect people online. And there's two main threats out there. Number one is organized crime. Um, we used to call them script kitties. They would send you silly malware or viruses. That's not what they're doing now. They want money. Mm -hmm. And they're finding ways to generate revenue, whether it's directly stealing from people or stealing their data and reselling it. Or locking them out. Or locking them out of their data. Like as ran well. ransomware. Ransomware. Mm -hmm. and, but we're also finding even when they do the ransomware, they'll steal the data first. Hmm. Because they're finding out a lot of companies have gotten better. They have good backups. Yes, they may still be down for... I mean, our, our security analyst was telling us the other day they went into a hospital. They were down for 33 days wow. doing everything on paper. And so it, it, it's changing in that aspect that they're, they're pulling this data out and selling it or embarrassing you or, or the company. Um, and then the other thing we're seeing is nation state attacks. And we really believe those are going to be on the rise you know, now, what do you mean by that? Nation, is it, would this be like power grid type stuff? It could be power grid, you know, water supply. We ah. saw a little bit of it with the, the colonial pipeline attack a few years ago. Yes. When gas was shut off to a large part of the eastern U.S. The, those type of attacks. Now, that one actually opened the eyes of a lot of people in that what was cap what was possible. And also it opened the eyes of the criminals and saying, wait a minute, we don't want this much attention. But a nation state, whether it's China, Russia, mm -hmm. they would love to have that kind of attention and be able to 
bring a country to their knees. And you know, there's so many of these things, and it does beg the question. There's so many uh, players out there. There's there's a lot of them that are are wicked, mm-hmm. and they would love just to stomp us down and to to do that. Yes. Uh, and and then you have this almost what's going on in America right now. This openness. It's almost like we've given these countries an invitation to come right in and steal us blind. And, you know, there's a lot of catch up by the U.S. government in trying to corral this. So there's a there's a program from the Department of Defense called CMMC trying to get contractors to say, hey, you've got to protect this government data that we're sharing with you to manufacture our products that you've bid on. Um, they are obviously they're freaking out. These the, you know these are machine shops. They make parts. They don't know anything about technology, and they don't want to deal with the level of complexity that's adding to their processes. And then the other one that's that's coming um, coming up in June of this this year, June 9th, twenty twenty three, is called the Safeguard Rule. Any business that does financial transactions, car dealerships. Uh, if you're renting apartments or homes or anything where you're uh, uh, grabbing folks' financial information and relaying it to a lender mm-hmm. or a finance company, you now have a series of things you not only have to do, but prove that you have done. And so we're seeing a lot of government involvement in this because companies haven't been as careful with data as they should have been. I mean, right. I, I hired an attorney some years ago. And, and, uh, I did some work for him and then I asked him if maybe he could do some work for me. And ultimately I didn't have him do work for me because his IT infrastructure was so porous and mm. dangerous, dangerous. I didn't want yeah. him having my information. Wow. That, that involved my, my case, you know, my uh, civil case. So, and I just wonder how many of us dance with the devil on that one all the time. We just, we don't even know we're we doing don't, it. We don't have a clue. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is tough. (laughs) Curtis Partridge is my guest, and we're going to talk more about these things, especially a list that he's got out called The Seven Things Every CEO Must Do to Protect Themselves Online. So don't go away. This is Afternoons with Mike here on The Shepherd. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years' experience, EC Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Such an enjoyable visit today with Curtis Partridge, a first-time guest and uh, a person that's involved with the whole technology industry that's out there today. We have really not talked a whole lot yet about it. It's a company, Lotus Management Services. It is an IT company, and I know that you offer uh, an ability for companies that don't have their own department, uh, which we all need, and we we all see the need for a a real cohesive uh, plan for communication. If you don't have that in this day and age, you're really a target and, yes. and can be uh, horribly impacted by these hackers that are out there. So you've got this uh, list that you put out, and I know you touched on it just a little bit in the last segment. Seven things every CEO must do to protect themselves. Tell us about that. Yeah, we, we've worked on this for a while and, and even worked with the, our security consultants on as well. We have a, an outside cons- security consultant we use. We get together with them every few months up in Nashville and spend a few days with their team to learn what's going on. Uh, Cause it's hard for one or, or a handful of people to really track everything that's happening and what's changing. So they helped us develop this, um, you know, and, and the reason we targeted CEOs, anybody in a management position or a leadership position in any organization is that the, the criminals have realized those are the people that hold the keys to the kingdom. So they know that's who you go after because they have the authority. People listen to them when they talk. So if that if an email looks like it's coming from that person to wire money somewhere, mm-hmm. an employee's going to do it. So the boss told me to do it. I'm going to do it. So that's why we came up with this is really focusing on because that's where we see the the most effective 
targeting taking place. One of the first one is fishing, or mm-hmm. we're now calling it whaling, because and that'd this, be fishing with a ph, right? Fishing yeah. with a ph, right? Um, and then there's spear fishing where it's very targeted, so it's something that only you would know. So they've researched something that only you would know. Oh, and that makes it feel accurate and legit. Right, exactly. Because we we've all gotten these phishing messages for years with the crazy spellings and the 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 weird return address, but they've gotten very good and they'll, they're making investments. They'll buy a, a, a domain that's very similar to your domain. One of the things we do when we work with a company on a security front is we'll list all of the alternate domains and have them buy the misspellings of their own company name Yeah, because that keeps down that type of attack. But that's the extent that these attackers are going to that they are making investments in trying to steal money and it works. Mm-hmm. I talked to somebody the other day, he had a client that uh, the CEO had wired almost a hundred thousand dollars to a, a criminal. Um, we had one of uh, our, a company that came to us that we had worked with who came to us because the CEO had gotten an, an email, an invoice and he approved it, sent it over to their controller who paid it. Uh, it was uh, right around $45,000. Wow. And it, it was a scam. Oh, my um, goodness. It was a real invoice from a real vendor, yeah. but the vendor had infiltrated their email system, grabbed the email, recreated the invoice with their payment portal, and then when it got to the controller, she paid it. And so they went to the bank and said, hey, um, look, we've got we got stuck on this. And they said, we're sorry, that's not something we cover. We can't help you. You need to go to your insurance company. That's who's going to help you. Well, mm-hmm. they went to their insurance company and they said, yeah, you didn't buy the right kind of insurance for this. Ultimately, they were on the hook for the $45,000. Wow. And this is happening every day. These these cases are up um, a, a significant amount, 77% from 2020 to 2021. So this is something that everyone needs to guard themselves. How can people get a hold of this list? So um, if they wanted to reach out to me personally, um, my telephone number, we, they, they could give me a call if you want me to share my number. Or, sure. Yeah, it's a, or your email address, either one. Sure. Yeah, my email is a little complicated. but I, Okay. <laughs> but it is, uh, you can uh, call me at 407-982-5342, extension 104. And again, that's 407-982-5342, extension 104. And our website's lotusbusinesstech.com. You can reach us through there as well and uh, set up an appointment. We love consulting with businesses and sitting down and saying, even if you don't hire us, just an opportunity to sit down and say, hey, um, here's some areas that you really need to look at and make some improvements. One of the ways we do that is, so every month we are scanned in what they call a penetration test. So in other words, a company tries to break into our systems every month, and then they tell us if they made it in or not, or if they did, what did they find, and what do we need to fix? So because we pay for this service and we have a fluctuation on uh, how often we use it and we have to buy minimums, we end up with extras. So we give these away. If a company wants to have this type of scan, we'll give it to them, we'll sit down and say, Here's what we found. No obligation, no anything like that. So we just, we love working with local companies. We've been around for 11 years as Lotus Management Services. And that's really been our sweet spot is working with people um, and understanding how they can be more secure. Now, one of the things that everybody hears about on not only commercials, but talk radio shows where the host will uh, to talk about this would be companies that will protect your personal information. What in your mind, Curtis, is the number one thing that people need to be aware of when it comes to their personal information? Just be careful about handing out that information and, and, and doing it inadvertently. So there's some certain things like we talked about phishing. Mm-hmm. When you get an email, look at the links in that email and the, my best advice, let's say you got an email from supposedly Bank of America and you're a Bank of America customer. Right. 
don't click any links in the email. Go to bankofamerica.com and open your account from there. The other, don't call the telephone number. These guys are so advanced, they actually set up telephone numbers and the, then they will try and glean the data from you over a telephone call. Yeah, because the, if you call and that f person answers and it seems legit, that, that disarms a lot of people. And yes. they give away their social security number, they give away uh, other information, or, you know, I think about what happens often. There is, a, a, I think it is a phishing form, but uh, with Amazon, you'll yeah. get an email saying, your order of $285 for this uh, is complete. Yep. Uh, and, and you, wait a minute. <laughs> so you call the number and you didn't order that. Obviously you didn't order it. But again, that gives them an opportunity to get a leg in. Yes, and to steal data. The yeah. other thing we're seeing is uh, smishing that comes from text. Now, how it got the name smishing, I'm not totally sure. Probably SMS. And uh, fishing. There we oh go. My that's goodness, where it that's came. Probably it. I, it yeah. just popped into my head. Yeah. So that that's uh, we we kind of forget it's called SMS, but that's smishing. Is there now? They're using text messages. The FCC has come out with a notice recently that they're seeing a massive rise in uh, what they call robo text or smishing, where folks again send you a link, you click it on your phone, and they're ultimately just trying to steal your password. By the way, if you get one of those, you can forward it to spam 7726. Spam 7726. Either one. Yeah, it's 7726 spells out spam. Oh, I get it. Yep. And so you can send it to 7720, forward it, because uh, the government likes to collect these. The wireless carriers are getting very involved in controlling this as well. T-Mobile yeah. is probably the most active and trying to squelch this. Now, there's something that I think a lot of people are always wondering about, and you see the word hacker used with this. That would be like a, a person who has a Facebook account, and suddenly there is a, a new identity that has their picture, borrowed their profile, yep. and uh, but it's not them, and it's sending out all of this data, re friend requests to people that are already your friends. Yep. What is the what is the big aim in that? Again, gathering information. They wanna they wanna find the big fish, and so that's how they do it. And they know that a lot of CEOs and you know leaders in in organizations are super busy. You know, one of the things we advise is tap the brake a little bit, take a moment to take a look at this. And again, that happens. You know, in social media, I have gotten almost tricked into a couple of those. I mm -hmm. was fished one time. I, I'll admit that I was fished some years ago and gave away a company's entire advertising platform because I got fished. This was probably, I want to say about 12 years ago, 12, wow. 13 years yeah. ago. I, it was a company called Overture that used to handle advertising for Yahoo and companies like that. And um, I, I got fished one day they, you know, said I need to log in and look at something. I logged in. Nothing happened when I did. I didn't think about it because, again, I was going 1,000 miles an hour. And then the next day, the advertising platform was completely changed. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. They, they did their work quick. They did their work quick. And, yeah. and, again, that was, what, probably 13, 14 years ago. That is amazing. Yeah. This is really fun to talk with you. Have to have you back up sometime. Yeah, I would love we to. We haven't even gotten into a lot of it. Just briefly, you also have a, a, a kind of a digital online radio station that you oversee. Tell us quickly about that. I'm sure you can relate. Radio is kind of like a bug. Yeah. Once you get it, it's kind of hard to get away from. And, <laughs> and, I, and I see a lot of opportunity in streaming that, uh, you know, that, you know, I think now it's early days. But I think someday it's going to be more familiar to folks. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, you know, this is an opportunity to, to put a stake in the ground here in the Lake Nona community. So we developed Nona.fm, my wife and I, and, and um, a couple of friends have, you know, kind of pitched in here and there. And, and we're just kind of having fun with it. Really That's awesome. Bringing the community together. We, we broadcast Lake Nona High School football this fall. Uh, with a couple of uh, local sports guys that, you know, are really into local sports. And so we've, we've just had a lot of fun with so it. So they were working exclusively with you then on that. We were, yes. And that oh, took a while to, to, uh, 
convinced them that we were a good fit for that. But yeah, we had a good time with it. And the school enjoyed it. And, and we had uh, a lot of folks that, that listened in. I got stopped on, you know, my you know Friday night game and Sunday morning grabbing a couple of things at Publix. Folks would would mention they heard it. So it was it was good. It's good to be able to help pull the community together and you know, and, and uh, it, it's a unique area, Lake Nona. It is. I have some friends that spend a lot of time down there, and I've gone camping down there at Moss Park before. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, it's so nice down yeah. there. It's a lot of fun. Yep. Curtis Partridge, tell us uh, your website, sure. uh, how people can go to check out online your stuff. Sure. LotusBusinessTech.com. That's T-E-C-H.com. And uh, that's where you can learn more about us. You can contact us from there, and uh, we'll uh, we love working with local businesses. We've done it for years, and look forward to meeting some some new folks and helping them with challenges. And again, you can work with any size company, right? Pretty much. The uh, limits probably about five computers, um, but we work with smaller. We have a couple, you know, lawyers. That's them and a paralegal. Um, so we're we're pretty adaptive in working with with companies. Okay. Um, to get our full suite, just because of licenses and stuff, we, it's five computers or more. But but we've been uh, able to work with some some pretty neat folks, even very small organizations. So even bigger organizations that might have been doing their IT work in house, you bring something to the table even for them. We do. So we started about uh, eight years ago. We worked with a, a local manufacturer here in Orlando. They got bought by a manufacturer in Atlanta. My wife brought a contract for what they called co-managed IT. We would help them run the IT at this rapidly expanding company. And I went, they're not going to go for this. So we sat down with the IT director. He took one look at the paper, said, Oh yeah, I'd be crazy not to. And he signed it. Oh, right there on the spot. Right there on the spot. Oh, and, man. and we've continued to have a relationship with them. It's, uh, they've continued to just explode across North America. And they ultimately got bought by a company in Michigan that's well over 100 years old and a, a Christian organization. How about them? They have the gospel right on the wall when you walk in the door of their facilities. And it's, I tell you, it's, we, we work with some of the most amazing companies. That's great. Curtis Partridge, my guest today. Uh, don't uh, forget the name of that organization, Lotus Management Services. That's all of our time. We thank you for yours. We'll see you next time right here on The Shepherd. Mm-hmm.